0: When something so overwhelming is coming in, when the information is too disturbing, it gets stored in a faulty way in the brain. It's undigested. It's almost like you ate something you couldn't digest and it's sitting in the, like a ball in in your gut. So what's in that ball is raw sensory information. You have pictures, body sensations that carry the, the intense emotional charge from when they first came in because it's undigested. There's always a negative belief about yourself. And that's in there also. It can be a really irrational negative belief about the self, but that's in that ball too. And so then what do we do? We have this like minefield of these trauma balls inside. Most people, I don't want to go anywhere near those. You know, people avoid them like crazy. They don't want to think about it. They don't want to talk about it. And this presents a particular dilemma for the artist because this is also a source of a lot of of creativity.
1: Hello there. Welcome to Creative Genius the podcast. I'm really excited to bring you this episode today. It's been a long time coming. Some of you might remember a while back I asked, what would you ask a clinical and forensic psychologist who specialized in creativity? And you sent in your questions to me and I asked them to our guest today. Our guest is Dr. Cheryl Arrett. She is a clinical and forensic psychologist who co-hosts and is a regular member of the Behavior Bureau on HLN's panel show, Dr. Drew on Call. She often appears as a psychological expert on ABC, Fox News, HLN, and True TV's In Session. As a creative person herself, for many years, Cheryl was a commercial print and television actress. Cheryl's work as a psychologist often centers around creativity and the importance of healthy creative expression. She tells us how she left acting to pursue a psychology and thought she left the world of creativity behind only to find that it followed her to her practice. Cheryl is a compassionate and generous and thoughtful person, and I really appreciated the opportunity to be able to ask her questions about creativity from a brain science perspective. You have been leaving me such lovely reviews, and I wanted to just take a moment to say thank you for doing that. It really means so, so much to me. So please keep doing that. And I wanted to read you one here today. The username on this one is GT7620. This person writes, I feel like I found my sisterhood listening to these women. It's amazing to me that I can hear my own story in every conversation. I really had no idea how many people understand and share what I feel. Thank you for the beautiful magic. Thank you, GT7620. It means everything to me to be able to provide this space for us to have these conversations, to listen to them over and over again, and to do the inner work that we need to do to set ourselves free. It's an honor for me to do this work. So thank you for being here, all of you. And if you haven't left a review yet, please do. You can just head over right now to Apple Podcasts as you're listening to this episode and just leave a quick review, just a thought or a feeling of how you felt listening to the show or a moment, an aha moment you had. And I would love for you to think about listening to this podcast by donation. And what I mean by that is, if this is something that's meaningful for you, if you get inspiration or encouragement, or it simply raises your spirits to listen to these conversations, please sign up to make a small $5 or $10 contribution each month to help make sure that I can continue to have the resources I need to keep making the show for you. Find out more on patreon.com slash Podcast. If you've ever wondered what the science is behind creativity, what causes creativity in the brain, what part of the brain is dealing with creativity, and how we might activate more creativity in the brain, Dr. Cheryl and I talk about all these things. She explains how creativity works, and what it even is from a brain science perspective. We talk about the link between education and creativity. And at one point, I ask her if we're doing enough to foster creativity and creative thinking in our school systems. And she gives us some actionable things that we can do at home for ourselves and also for our children to rev our own creative engines. One of my favorite moments, though, comes towards the end when I ask her about the possibility of the opposite of inheriting generational trauma. So we know that we can inherit generational trauma. We know that from a brain science perspective now. But I wanted to know, can we also inherit the opposite of trauma? Can we inherit the magical, wonderful things too? We share a really tender moment about that. One where I felt like she was talking to all of us. It's beautiful and it's uplifting and inspiring. And I think you'll be really moved by it. I can't wait for you to hear that. I wanted to remind you to sign up for my newsletter on kateshepardcreative.com. I offer free workshops, demos, workbooks. I do random gratitude offerings of 50% off original works of art. And I do a monthly art giveaway. I'm about to do a draw for the next one. So make sure you're signed up before that. And a reminder about the Creative Genius Facebook page. You can join our private community there. We discuss our aha moments from the podcast, share our creative pursuits, struggles, joys, and offer support to one another as we walk toward allowing the energy and intelligence of creativity to take over the driver's seat of our lives. There are so many wonderful things for you to hear in this conversation with Dr. Cheryl Errett today, and I'm so excited for you to get in. So, without further ado, here's my conversation with clinical and forensic psychologist Dr. Cheryl Errett. Welcome, Cheryl. I'm so excited to have you here. Thank you for joining us today. I'm-
0: I'm excited to be here too.
1: Thank you. Uh, I wanted to tell you a little bit about the intention of the show before we get into our chat. There's so many things I want to talk to you about. I hope we can actually fit them all in. I'm an artist and I, and I believe that creativity is in all of us and, it, and that it's there from the very beginning. And that in fact, it never, try, it never stops trying to get our attention. And that it offers us this wealth of important things that maybe we're not sort of taught about, you know, as children in school, we think about creativity as sort of art. But I think some of the things that creativity can give us are actually really critical for living healthy, fulfilled lives. And I started this podcast because, as an artist, I would run into people continually over and over again at various different art events and galleries and shows where they would just say, oh i don't I don't have it in me. I wish I did, but i I just i'm not I'm not a creative person quote unquote. And I had this aha moment a while back where i I saw that everything in the, the, in the wrong in the world could be traced back to these limiting beliefs we have about what creativity is and where it lives. And, and, and humanity is basically glitching because we have forgotten how to access this really critical part of ourselves. So I, I'm on a mission to help as many people as I can discover and rediscover this aspect of themselves uh, through my own little corner of the world, because I know that it is right here and it has so many things to offer us. So, yeah, that's kind of the intention of the show and I was really excited to have you on because you're, you know, you're a you're a clinical and forensic psychologist and you've specialized in treating trauma for over 20 years and I was really curious when I read that you one of the areas of focus in your work is creative artist issues. And so maybe I want to start off by just asking you what when you first started doing this work, what caught your attention about creativity?
0: Oh, that's such a huge question. <sighs> There's so much to talk about with that. I spent 20 years in a creative field. I actually grew up as a creative artist. And when I became a psychologist, I thought I was leaving. I thought I was completely changing my life. It was like jumping off a cliff with a new identity. I didn't tell anybody what I used to do. And I had gone to school to be a psychologist. And all of a sudden, my practice started filling up with actors and writers and directors and cinematographers and and all of these other creative performers. And they were just like, oh my God, you get my life. You understand me. And they they didn't really ask me why like, or think about how, but I had grown up in their industry and retired when I was 25 and went back to school with scholarships from SAG and AFTRA to go and learn to to do something that I thought was something else. Right. And then all the creative stuff circled back and found me in a different way. And what I really get to do now is I get to really help people fully get access to themselves and be grounded and then go and do their thing while they hold on to themselves in a healthy way. And, and so the creative part was kind of always with me. But I think it it ended up surprising me as creativity does. That's funny how that
1: happens, isn't it? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> yes, for sure. I feel like our, it has to be named. I feel like our, our collective definition of creativity is so narrow and it's so limiting. You know, we think it's art and it's in the visual arts, especially, you know, like a lot of the stereotypes are on creativity. And, and I really want Personally, part of my mission feels like I want to help to redefine creativity so that more people can find it and find it in themselves. But I really was excited to talk to you from sort of a brain science perspective. Like what is your definition through that lens of of what creativity is? Creativity is being able to act
0: out in a way that's constructive. We think so much about acting out as as a bad thing, but people who are creative. They create something that didn't previously exist. And they do that using their creativity. And we can use that in all kinds of constructive ways. We can use it in ways that aren't as constructive. And from a brain science perspective, creativity is, it's the opposite of rigidity, of, of being locked down. You, you have access to yourself and it operates very often in a, in a very unconscious way. When I see people, when we're talking about the things that we generally think about as conventionally creative, because you, you also made a really good point that actually, I think I want to talk to first. I had a conversation just last week with a friend of mine who was saying, oh, I'm not creative. I'm not creative like you and these other friends of ours. And I said, wait a minute, you are somebody who has just completely re-envisioned your department where you work." and reorganize everybody's job description that actually works better for their lives and made things more beautiful and functional. And what I love about her is she's a minimalist. She can, you know, carry this little teeny bag on vacation and she can see, you know, what's essential and what isn't. And her creative problem solving is something that she never thought about as being creativity. But it's so creative, and it's something I've always really valued about her. So that's just one example of why do, ways that people
1: are creative. Why do we do that? This is something I wanted to, to get to. <laughs> May as well just jump to it right now. What is it yeah. that that we are doing as a culture, as a group, or as a to so readily believe that story? Oh, I'm not creative because it's ev- it is mm-hmm. everywhere, and it's so obviously not true to me. To oh, me, it's yeah. obviously not true. But I, <laughs> but. But, but, but so many people are so quick to, to believe that and embrace that idea and almost hide behind it. Like, what are we scared of? Or why do we believe that?
0: I think that a lot of what makes us pull back from that when we get older than kindergarten is perfectionism and our inner critic. I think that we can put so much pressure on ourselves and feeling like, oh, I'm not good at this or I'm not good enough or as good as this other person is. And if you have your inner critic on your shoulder the whole time you're creating something, it's very difficult to hear yourself think. And it's very difficult to really let what comes out come out. And so a lot of what I think makes people grounded and have a good experience with their creativity is being able to identify that inner critic and get it to shut up. Mm -hmm or kind of get your inner bouncer to boot it out of there and leave you alone so you can do your thing. Do you have strategies that you work
1: with people to do that? Cause I think, I mean, that's, it's, it's so bang, it's so bang on. Like that is exactly what you need to do And There was, I had another guest on who talks about uh, her committee and how she would, she, she would say, I rebuke you. You, you have to go sit over there like in the studio. Like she'll actually sometimes out loud say. The inner committee. Yeah, the inner committee. Like you can't, yeah. you know, you can't be here. But so when you're working with somebody who's really just, because it can be paralyzing, right? To ha- to be dealing oh, with that. Yeah. I, I've always called it my board of directors, my inner board of directors. They can really be paralyzing. And so do you have strategies yeah. that you give people to work with to help to shut those guys up?
0: Well, the people that you're talking to seem to have a whole a, a whole posse of these of these people at once, like a Greek chorus of, of all, all on your case at once. I, you know, I think that one of the things that can be really helpful is to really recognize it as an other, that this is something that is not the truth about you or how the world works. This is coming from a very specific, very biased point of view. And it basically has one job, And that one job is to make you feel terrible about yourself. And it will lie to you. It will use any kind of trick in order to tell you you're not enough or you shouldn't or whatever you did is wrong and it should be something else. If you can recognize that and not identify with it, I love what the the person you were speaking to said about, you know, I rebuke you (laughs) and and sending it away. I find it can be actually really helpful to not even get into a, you know, a death match with it because, you know, you're kind of fighting on its turf in that way. But to be able to turn the volume down, to be able to also really cultivate what do I want instead of this? What do I want to think about myself instead? What do I want to feel instead? And what am am I calling in? Because it it's a lot easier to say, oh, I don't want to do that. Or that was terrible. Or growing up, I felt like this. And, you know, maybe it's the opposite. Maybe that's what I should be doing. But the opposite is just as much determined by the bad thing as having to do the same thing. You're
1: nodding, you know. Well, it's a house of mirrors in there, right? Well, I, yeah. yeah I, it, totally. It totally. is. It's a house of mirrors yeah. once you get in there. And you, <laughs> I realized, I remember the day that I realized, oh, my God, that thing that I've been thinking was the good voice in there is actually just a shape-shifted version of the other inner critic. Like it'll do whatever it can to get my attention and to keep drawing me in. And I feel like sometimes it's grabbing at my ankles. I don't understand why, why does it do that? What is the purpose of that?
0: That's wisdom right there, the day you figured that out. I just want to reflect that back to you. <laughs> Thank you. It's, you know, it, it really does like to establish itself as if it's the truth. Or you need me. You need me. You would be right. so mediocre if I wasn't running the show and telling you all the things you're doing wrong. I mean, that I'm, I'm being, you know, the center critic. I call it the saboteur and the saboteur is there to really undermine you while posing as the protector, the one who keeps you excellent. I've never seen anybody really, really thrive because they beat themselves up harder and faster and more preemptively than anybody else. Right. You know, yeah. it, it's just, it, you know, there's so much unnecessary suffering yeah. that happens. And so I think first, just getting the, the idea that it's lying to you and that you don't have to listen to it. And you can yeah. say, yeah, yeah, I hear you, but, but we, we tried your way. And and that didn't work for me.
1: Well, yeah, you know? and saying, like, I'm on you. And this is not about creativity, but I used to have a fairly significant fear of flying. And I caught mm-hmm. myself one day thinking that it was the fear that was keeping the plane in the air. And that the minute, the, <sighs> the day that I decided to not be scared would be the day that the plane would fall out of the sky. Because it was actually yes. the fear that was... And if you think of it from, like, a, a species evolving and, like, coming up with, like, a way to survive, what a brilliant thing my ego did to keep it, that part of itself alive. Like, that's such a compelling argument, right? Totally. You were flying the plane from your passenger seat. Yeah. Right? Yeah. You were protecting it by, by worrying.
0: And that's, that's the other thing, because that's the recipe for anxiety, is, you know, trying to control the things that are not in our control. Mm-hmm. And also, paying thinking we can prepay our anxiety. Because, you know, have you ever heard anybody say, I am so glad I freaked out about that for months and months and months, because then when it happened, you know, I'd already prepaid my anxiety. No, right. Yeah. It doesn't, it doesn't work, but we find ourselves doing it mm-hmm. anyway, mm-hmm. until we figure out, wait a second, I have a choice. I can choose something else. And the day on the, on the plane, you realize that you had a choice.
1: hmm yeah, and you yeah. dared and to I stop flying the plane. <laughs> and I did. It was terrifying. It, I I I said what would happen if I went on this plane and just didn't let that thought be in the driver's seat. What would happen? I was actually uh-huh. flying to California from Vancouver pre pre-pandemic. Wow. And it was exhilarating. I was terrified, but I it felt amazing. It felt really great. I've talked to a lot of artists and not really any scientist. You're my first scientist that I've talked to. And so I Ah. I had all these questions I want to ask you. When we're engaging in creative activities, so drawing or writing or painting or acting or dancing, like any of those things that Mm -hmm. we traditionally, but even your friend who's organizing her office and, you know, pulling in those parts of herself. What's happening in our brains mechanically? Is there something different than sort of the regular mode that we're in in our normal day-to-day lives? Mm -hmm. Is there a different creative mode and what's happening in there?
0: That's a really interesting question because on the one hand there is a special mode that some people call a flow state that we go into during creativity where it feels like you're just completely immersed in what you're doing and everything else falls away and afterward it you know you feel incredibly rejuvenated and you feel like you may have even lost time you don't know where the time went and you were just completely absorbed because you weren't toggling, you weren't tracking something else, you weren't also on your phone or also answering emails or doing whatever those things are. Doing things that put us in a flow state is incredibly healthy. When we think about is there a particular mode? On the one hand, we use creativity all the time, and it is sort of embedded not even in that ideal flow state, but in solving a problem in stepping back, reassessing and shifting and trying something different. And in doing the opposite of what the addiction people talk about, their definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different result. Creativity is kind of the opposite of that too. Going, this isn't working, let's try something else. You know, the thing is that the two biggest really different modes that our brains tend to be in are when we feel safe. And when we don't feel safe, our brains function completely differently when we are in fight or flight, or now we also know freeze, it's very difficult to be creative from, from that place. What we, what we've learned is that neurotransmitters that, that help us survive also built in these shortcuts to our brains. So when we are in a a mentor of mine, Dan Siegel created this idea of the window of tolerance and the window of tolerance is like that sweet spot where we get full access to ourselves. We can notice our bodies, we can think and feel and have kind of an all access experience with ourselves. That's optimal for lots of things. When we are hyper aroused, so we're above that, we're not feeling safe. We, we may have racing heartbeats Our thinking changes into black and white thinking where you're either with me or you're against me. We're we're in survival mode and and we're figuring out if we need to run or flee. And if we're below that window, that's hypo arousal, that's when people shut down or dissociate, or it's like the pinball machine hitting tilt, and you know, we don't have any access to ourselves there. But but one of the things that I think is really interesting about the fight or flight state is that All of the most creative parts up here in our prefrontal cortex and the forehead part above our eyes, that's the part where we do things like response flexibility, where we get to like, oh, I'm going to generate a bunch of options here and then pick the one that I think is the best one. Recognizing nuances of things, figuring out what what you want now versus what you want most All of these kinds of things take place in that prefrontal cortex of the brain. And guess what happens when we are in danger? It completely shuts down. As a matter of fact, I believe that we lose up to 50 IQ points when we are really angry or really tired. Oh, I've lived that. (laughs) Yeah, we've all said things that we're like, whoa, I'm a smart person and I said that? What was I thinking, right? Um, But if you think about it, it has tremendous survival value. If you know, if if a a predator jumped out in front of you and you went, hmm, what are all my options here? And and then I'll pick the best one. You 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 wouldn't make it out of that situation, right? So we we start reacting instead of responding. And you know, we find ourselves doing things before we even realize it. So it's really good to have that, but it's also really good for our brains to be able to tell when we're safe. So we can have like our whole brain and our access to our whole self. And from that place, I do think that when we're creating things, we also have a lot of unconscious input where a lot of times you may, I don't know if you've noticed this in your painting, but sometimes you think you're saying one thing with your work and then somebody else sees something else in it that it's actually really true of you or that you see there now, but you didn't intend to to do that in the first place, but that's what kind of came out.
1: Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I know exactly what you mean. Yeah.
0: So we use all of our brain, I think in this, but learning that, that we can do our best when we know how to tell when we're safe.
1: It sounds like as you're talking, I'm kind of trying to make meaning about my story because my I, my language around it is a lot more like sort of artisty and well it's your gut and you're this and you're like you know but uh-huh. we are saying the same thing and I, w- w- I think what we've done is we've leaned we've gone into the, like I feel like we're, there's these two pillars roughly speaking of our being and one is like the logical mind the rational mind the and then there's the sort of more creative aspect of ourselves and I I believe that they're meant to sort of be unified and work together, and we lean on one. You know, in the emergency where the tiger is attacking you, that's not the time to be creatively thinking of all your options, as you just said. And but so, but we but we've forgotten how to learn how how to access which one and at which time, and we've leaned really heavily on the sort of more rational mind, and that's why we're sort of glitching. Right. I feel like we're swimming in a circle. I always use the image that of like is a- so.
0: Oh, tell me the image. Oh, tell me I the always image. have this so image important.
1: of a sea turtle, like with one flipper. And it's like, <laughs> you know, oh, great. But I'm swimming in a big circle because I'm only using my rational mind. I feel like that's what humanity is doing right. right now. We've forgotten how to access. So, I mean, and it comes back again to uh, how do we cultivate, you know, for the person who thinks, I don't have a creative bone in my body, I wouldn't even know where to begin. How mm-hmm. can they start to plug into a creative practice that helps them strengthen that aspect of themselves so that they can be doing more of those activities?
0: First, I think they need to see the logical value in doing that because it is deeply valuable to be able to access the colors and, the, and the, to get the music and not just the lyrics of things. And, um, it, you know, it's, it's very interesting when we think about this split between logic and creativity or emotionality. And I think it's an artificial split. I think there was a fad for a while in psychology where you know, it was like logical or emotional or logical or creative. And it doesn't really work that way. And one of the things that we learned when, when we f- were first able to really study the brain when it's working, and that's only when we got the imaging equipment in the last few decades before that, you know, there were these crazy things people would say like, oh, we, we don't use 90% of our brains. Well, no, we actually use our whole brains. That's a myth. But people couldn't actually see what those parts did. So they just kind of made up that we had this major organ that was 90% useless, which is kind of like my mom telling me there were more vitamins in the crust of the bread than <laughs> the rest of the bread when it's really just cooked more. <laughs> You know, it makes no sense. Uh So, you know, logic is helpful here. Like logically, we wouldn't wouldn't have that. But at the same time, what people think is emotion-free logic is mediated by emotion. Those neural pathways and channels are directed by whether we feel safe or not, whether we have, you know, what we want and what we feel. And if we're so invested identity-wise in being logical and dismissing everything else and kind of clinging only to that we have to split off awareness of a whole bunch of other really important parts of ourselves almost like there are rooms in this palace that you never get to go in and never get to see so learning that even the logical thinking is mediated by emotion and that they work together, together. like you're saying mm. Then you get the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Then you're not looking at a partial view and and wondering what's wrong with this picture.
1: It leads me a little bit to um, trauma and and resolving trauma and 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 you know I want to acknowledge that there's you know there's micro traumas and then there's you know really big traumas and 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 it's re- it's relative like right? you know what you experience as a child may not be as like bad on paper as something yeah, but it's real to the person who's experiencing it and. And yeah. they all need to be, they all, I think, I feel they all need to be addressed, right? And so I wanted to talk about creativity and, and, and trauma resolution, but I, I wondered if you would help us to understand the mechanics of trauma. Like when somebody goes through a trauma, what is actually happening in the brain? And what are the repercussions of it afterwards? That is
0: a really, really interesting thing <laughs> to talk about. When somebody goes through a trauma, it interrupts a natural process that our brains normally do. Because when we normally take in information and digest what's happening and make meaning of what's happening to us, our brains decide where that goes, what's important, what isn't important. I think it's a really good metaphor when you think about digesting food. Like we pull out the nutrients and we figure out, oh, I don't need this stuff. And then we let that part of it go. And the memory gets consolidated. So like when you think about a memory that is not upsetting, that happened a long time ago, it has that like far away kind of feeling, right? Right. Trauma interrupts that process. When something so overwhelming is coming in, when the information is too disturbing, it gets stored in a faulty way in the brain. It's undigested. It's almost like you ate something you couldn't digest and it's sitting in the, like a ball in, in your gut. What's in that ball is raw sensory information. You have pictures, body sensations that carry the, the intense emotional charge from when they first came in because it's undigested. There's always a negative belief about yourself. And that's in there also. It can be a really irrational negative belief about the self, but that's in that ball too. And so then what do we do? We have this like mind field of these trauma balls inside. Most people, I don't want to go anywhere near those. You know, people avoid them like crazy. They don't want to think about it. They don't want to talk about it. And this presents a particular dilemma for the artist because this is also a source of a lot of, of creativity.
1: This episode of Creative Genius is brought to you by Morning Moon Nature Jewelry. Instantly familiar, yet unlike anything you've ever owned, this extraordinary handcrafted heirloom jewelry is famous for its incredible detail of actual textures from nature. Get 15% off your first order and feel the wonder. Use coupon code CREATIVEGENIUS at lovemorningmoon.com. So, it's a, there's, there's
0: a, kind of a a dialectic or a push-pull that goes on because on the one hand, I think creative people want to have contact with their pain because they use that in a way to, to create and to say something to the world. At the same time, I think a lot of artists are very afraid of healing their trauma because they're afraid it will make them lose what makes them special as an artist. And so... People who are not creative people, when they come in for trauma work, they're like, I want to be out of pain. I don't want to think about this anymore. You know, get me past this. Artists are like, I'm going to use this. Or, you know, look at the people who figured it out and maybe their work wasn't as great later. And, you know, what if that's me? And of course, they're not thinking about the people whose work is even better or the people who wouldn't have made any work at all if they destroyed themselves, you know, if they hadn't healed. So, so this memory storage and this, I think the, the, the metaphor of digestion, is really helpful to understand why we have these little pockets of, of supercharged content that when we touch them, you know, we get this big flare of intensity because it's undigested, it's unprocessed trauma.
1: So from a creative, so sort of, you know, I'm thinking about like people who are doing art therapy. Is it a matter of going back? And like what's the, what is the process of going in and accessing? Like for somebody who's saying, okay, I'm willing to suspend my belief that, you know, I need this. I need to hold on to it. I, you know, I'm ready to let it, I'm ready mm-hmm. to, I can't. Mm-hmm. And in fact, oftentimes I feel like what I see is people are, actually surrendered. They can't hold it anymore because it becomes too much to hold. So when they get to that yes. point or for whatever reason somebody's ready to start to look at some of these. Mm-hmm. I love the image of the trauma balls. Thank you. How, how? What are the mechanics of using creativity or a creative process or your own creative practice for uh, not only accessing those but also accessing them in a way where the whole thing didn't just explode and now you're in this big like it's all awake and alive right. and you've got all these live wires. How, how can somebody navigate themselves through that and use creativity to help to digest some of these things that are stored in the in the wrong way that you're that you're saying.
0: Well, there was a psychologist who made a creative discovery about this exact thing that you're talking about. She was walking down the street one day and she was thinking about something that really bothered her a lot and she noticed that her eyes were moving very ballistically quickly from one side to the other in a way that People don't normally do. I don't know why she did this. But she noticed that after a while, it didn't bother her as much as it did before. And because she w- was a psychologist and had access to, she taught at a at, you know in a university setting. She had access to all these students and she started researching this. And she brought all these people in and had them think about things that bothered them and move their eyes in this way. And it helped them also, which was amazing. And then all these people in, in the field were like, That's strange. What a bizarre form of treatment. I mean, you can probably imagine this is not the way things were generally done. It's interesting. uh, Bessel van der Kolk, who's uh, one of the probably top trauma experts in the world. He's a Harvard psychiatrist, and uh, he wrote a book you may have heard of called *The Body Keeps the Score*. Yep. And. He talks about when, when this, this was the beginning of, of EMDR, which is eye movement desensitization and reprocessing therapy. And he said, you know, there were, there, there were these residents who were, who were, you know, medical residents who were working in, in the psychiatry rotation who were doing this weird eye movement thing. And, and yet, you know, at first he was like, stop this at once. And then he said, you know, the strange thing is that the people that they were working with got better, like really quickly. And started researching this. This is now an evidence-based treatment that that is available around the world, that the, there are bodies of of literature and meta-analysis about it. But what what she creatively kind of accidentally discovered, and using the eyes, which are the only part of the body, actually, that each eye is wired into both sides of the brain, where... My right hand is wired into the left side and my left hand to the right, but the right visual field of both eyes goes left and left goes right. Apparently, our own bodies naturally do this rapid eye movement when we're sleeping during memory consolidation. And we take the contents of the day and for some reason this is connected with like your body going, oh, I'm going to digest this stuff right now and figure out what's important. And that's why... People say sleep on it when you have a big decision to make, right? So for some reason, the trauma stuff that was stuck, when you actually scaffolded by giving somebody to look at to do this bilateral stimulation, which is stimulating off the midline of the body, your brain kind of went, oh yeah, I forgot to do that one. And on its own, it would start, you know, digesting the trauma memory and you could actually watch the the charge drop until a person could think about something that might have been like on a scale of 0 to 10 a 10 in how much it bothered them where they could think about it and it it wasn't charged and not only that but because their brain made all these new connections now that they're safe and maybe they've grown i'm a big believer in post traumatic growth They can look back and instead of blaming themselves for something or feeling shame about what happened to them, they could recognize all the things like, wow, look at how resourceful I was, or look at how brave I was, or there were these people who helped me, or I didn't give up. I kept going and really come to have a very different, very powerful, positive feeling about themselves instead of whatever that negative belief about them, you know, that hearkening back to the saboteur and the inner critic, you know that they latch onto to paralyze creative people. So actually creatives have more access once they are able to free themselves. Yeah, I
1: was going to ask what the, I'm imagining, you know, as you're t- saying that about the eyes being wired in individually never, and net that never would have occurred to me. But as uh, when you're embodying a, your creative practice, whether it's painting or drawing or writing mm-hmm. even, or you're experiencing things. And so can you sort of, do you think you could prompt Or is it a similar phenomenon that's happening when people are doing art therapy, processing, and you're moving because you're looking around and you're, is it, do you think it's related to that? I don't think it's the same thing. I think
0: that, that art therapy can be very powerful in helping people draw things. And by, by drawing and making things, they can express things that they can't say, or they were told not to say. Or maybe it happened at a preverbal time when they didn't have the words to be able to talk about it, or it's a, a channel to the unconscious
1: material they don't even know they have this to say. So it's it's very it's a very rich area. I'm glad you brought that up because I did. I read, read one of the articles that you'd written, and you wrote, "I'm continually amazed at the work of the unconscious in the minds of creative artists." and I wanted to ask you to say a little bit more about that because I what you, because of what you just said I do think that it can be a portal for us but I don't know much about it so maybe you could mm. tell us how that works.
0: Sure it is fascinating to see what people make whether it's a novel or a painting or some other type of work there there are ways that that the artist is conduit almost for this unconscious material and it's almost like you don't even know what you've done until you've created it. and it's really sometimes it's very special for me when artists share their work with me, and we can kind of explore I'm not as an art critic at all, but as as if they had shared a dream or some other unconscious material to have them share their associations to the different aspects of it, if it's a visual piece, for example, or to to look at the ways that, that writing a novel or a screenplay or, or something else, the conflicts that people are trying to work through show up in the characters they make. How could they not? And they get this this alternate universe to be able to work that stuff out. And there's wish fulfillment. They get to have people say and do things they wish someone would say and do in their lives. It could be very healing. There's uh, ways of expressing parts of themselves that they've hidden, but with the safety of, of character and, and uh, a work that isn't literally them. There's so much freedom to be able to explore and play. And I think that cultures everywhere, probably from the beginning of time, Used art and theater for this purpose, to be able to express these things and to be able to share them with each other and, and go, "Oh my God, it's not just me and to not feel alone <laughs> right
1: Yeah, yeah, and it's like you said, I love that. it's a safe place. it's like, well, I didn't say that my it came out of my art or it, it, <laughs> it's over there. now we can talk about it and but then as soon as that other person says me too, then then you can feel. A little safer being vulnerable, saying, well, you know, I kind of do think that or feel that or, yeah, wow. And then people feel less alone. So as an artist, I feel like creativity, it's, it's a presence in my life. It's almost, it's almost like a person. I can feel it has an energy. It has ideas. It has it ups and downs. It comes and goes. It is mm-hmm. uh, it, almost tangible. And it feels like it's trying to do something. And I, I, think, I, feel, I sit with this a lot because I, I, I want to know, like what, what do you think that energy is trying to do? Well,
0: as I'm listening to you, I, I'm wanting to
1: ask you, what does it want you to know? Let me feel into that for a minute. I'll ask it. Hang on a second. I'll ask it. It's uh, an invitation to enjoy myself. Yes. You want to take it up on that? Yeah. 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 And I, I think that's the, whole, that's the whole point of all of this, right? All of it is that's what we're here to do. Yeah. It's inviting you and and
0: by association, all these people you're inviting into participating in creativity with you to step more deeply into their joy, into all of
1: our joy. Oh, I love that so much. Oh, thank you. I, so we're kind of nearing <laughs> the end of our time together, but I did, I put a little call out to some of our listeners the other day because I wanted to ask, I, I told them I was going to be talking to you and I said, you know, if you could ask this person anything, what would you, what would you want to know? So it would be okay if I shared a few of their questions with yeah, you? Yeah, okay.
0: absolutely.
1: So one of them is when and how is the major damage to our creativity done? And can this damage be resolved?
0: I, I would, if I had to pick one word, I would say shame. Shame is a tremendous obstacle. And shame is so powerful that even naming it or talking about it at all can evoke it and make people feel it. So it's, it's a tricky one. When we are ruled by a sense of ourselves as being defective or inadequate or being painfully seen as that, we don't want to go, hey, look what I made. Look what I did. You know, it's risky to send your personal, private, creative work out into the world. It takes courage to do that, right? So, so I would say to, to your listener, the more we can heal our shame, recognize our worth, that, that we deserve to be seen and known and loved, the more we can do that, We can use the creativity as a means of helping heal the shame with other people.
1: Mm -hmm. Another of the questions was, it's hard to be creative in a world that seems to offer very little support for it. What do I do? Mm.
0: Yes, it is hard to be creative. And yet, when we open up our definition of creativity, we see that it's everywhere. So I would really want to ask that person, what are you holding as being creative? Are you inhabiting all of the creative things that you are? And then also looking at the myths about art and creativity, that it's only, uh, you have to suffer to be an artist, you have to be destructive. and, And if you get paid for it, then you're selling out. And, you know, you have to be a starving artist. I mean, like all of, all of these ideas that, you know, artists get thrown at them. And no wonder people think, oh, God, no, you don't want to do that, do you? You want to live on the straight and narrow and, and here's the ladder to success, climb it, off you go. But it sounds like that person has something that they want to say. And I hope that they dare to, to use their voice.
1: Mm, I love that. What do you think is the link between education and creativity? And I think this came from somebody who has small children in school, and he's concerned that they're not focusing enough on fostering creativity and creative thinking in the education system. And mm. And can we deal with that later, or is that going to have long-lasting impact? And what can they be doing at home to help foster that?
0: Great question. I I think that keeping a sense of play is important, we can educate the creativity right out of our kids if we're not careful. And you know, I was really lucky. There was a there was a program that I went to one day a week in elementary school, where they would they had this sort of alternate kind of creative thing. We'd do something that they called CPS, which was creative problem solving, where they'd say, "Okay, here's a piece of sheet metal with these dimensions. Like, what could it be used for?" Or coming up with these. You know, how many words can you make that start with this and end with that? And like, we got to do all this like really fun stuff. And I think that's still benefiting me now. I think the games that we play with our kids and they play with each other, puzzles, um, not being so focused on passing and failing, but looking at qualitative stuff and and keeping the idea of what's another way to to solve that or or mm. to achieve that and get out of that linear kind of there's one right way to do things um, can really be
1: expanding for kids. I love that. I've got little kids of my own and I love the what's another way. I do, we do a lot of art, as you can imagine. My, my kitchen table actually yeah. doesn't even have, we'd never eat at, we eat at the counter in the kitchen because there's <laughs> too many art supplies on our table, on the dining room table. Love but it. We often end up doing sort of the, some of the same things because we get into even a creative groove. And so I, lo- I, I wrote that down, what's yeah. another way? Because you, you've said that a few times throughout this conversation of what's another way of looking at this or what's another way of, and I love that as a way of kind of exercising that muscle, our creative muscle. I love that. Um, okay, this one is from me. This was a question that I just kind of didn't know where to put in, but I'm going to just ask it to you now. I, I'm wondering if uh, if you think that from a scientific perspective, we can, and I'm going to put quotes on this, remember things from our ancestors. And I'm thinking about like images and symbols and, you know, things get transferred in the DNA that indicate what, how, our physical form, but is there a similar way of translating? Because there, I feel that there are things in me that I can't explain. From yeah. the, and I just I've wondered, what, you know, what, scientifically, what the what your thinking is on that. This is profound, because you're
0: asking both a, a scientific and a and a spiritual question. I think at the same time, scientifically, what we know is that there are intergenerational things that get passed down. We don't know whether it is entirely genetic, whether identifications with what, you know, we've seen even unconsciously, we kind of can swallow whole um, certain things without even realizing that we've taken something in. But on a genetic level, there's also, there, there are genes that can be switched on or off in terms of, of the environment that we're in. And one, I think one of the most powerful things that I've seen research wise has been regarding intergenerational trauma, that there are certain things about if your ancestors did not feel safe and they had to escape something, or they lived in persecution, or they were refugees, or there were, you know, the, the kinds of hardships that, that, inflicted upon groups of people. And I say that very mindful of what's going on right now as we speak. Those are things that those traumas can get passed down intergenerationally. And um, that's one of the reasons why I think addressing it and reprocessing trauma and finding ways to convert it into something that can lead to post-traumatic growth and connection is so vitally important not just for creativity, but also for health. Because people who come from generations of of painful history are at greater risk of all kinds of illnesses and things unless they find their ways of, of, of healing themselves and also being by being more healed, being able to deeply connect with other people. Our connection with each other is incredibly resilient. So, so there are cultural pieces and things. There are people who know things or, or, or feel things or have symbols that resonate and they don't know why. And then maybe they, they learn about their family history and there's a, there's a significance there. But I think given, given my work, where I go to first is intergenerational trauma and the effects, the, the really important health resiliency and interpersonal quality of life benefits that people have when they're able to work through the the trauma they know, and by virtue of that, also access and work through the trauma they may not
1: know, but they're carrying anyway because of who they are. Right. And on that, so there's two things coming up for me. What, what one of them is, if if trauma can be passed down, can also, you know, other experiences of like intelligence and wisdom and knowing and in, intuition and I'm assuming mm-hmm. that if you can hand down trauma you can also hand down muscle memory for for the good things. So that was one thing. And then the other mm-hmm. thing, the reason I asked you this is that at the time that we're recording this, the the Russia has just invaded Ukraine. And I am a Ukrainian Canadian who was raised by ah. by so my grandmother, my great-grandmother came to Canada uh, and had my grandmother. There's no but they they you know they didn't talk a lot about it because and I think this happens a lot. To um, To immigrant families or refugee families where they get to the new place and it's like, we're not going to talk about that. That was too hard. You just have to learn. Yeah. So my mom wasn't allowed to learn Ukrainian and we didn't, you know, we got the sort of Easter eggs and the borscht and the halibchi and cabbage rolls, you know. Um, but we didn't, yeah. we didn't really ever talk about sort of the history of it. And when I couldn't, I couldn't get out of bed actually the whole weekend, that first weekend when, when this first started unfolding and I couldn't explain it I couldn't I was having a really cellular experience and I had never felt so connected I had never even been curious about Ukraine really you know Mm -hmm. Um, but suddenly I was having this like visceral connection that I can't explain it did I just all I can say is it felt cellular and I I cried and cried and cried until my brain was raw and my eyes hurt and and finally, I texted my mom and I was just like, you know, I'm, if I'm feeling this, I can't even imagine what you're feeling. And she said, Katie, because she calls me Katie. Yeah. You know, there's a time for crying. And, but, you know, all Ukrainian woman would tell you there's also, you know, a time for crying and then you have, and then you need to act. And so cry and do the crying and and so I took that to heart. You know, other friends had been saying, "Go to your art," because you know, and we talked about earlier when you're processing difficult things, art. Can be. So I did. Mm-hmm. I went to my art, and I, uh, sorry, <laughs> I couldn't believe. No, it's okay. I, I started to see how all my life, all the little doodles that I've done, are Ukrainian symbology. They're all, like all the ancient stuff that you find on the, like, and it's. I can. I was looking through journals, and I was just like, "Oh, this has been in me." It was never taught to me. And here it all is. And it's so multifaceted. You know, I mean, I I feel like I'm kind of like holding that good part of of, of what's going on energetically even for that culture and what's going on over there right now. And also like reconnecting with this. And I just thought, just because I was curious about, you know. It's a it's a very old culture and for thousands of years, or at least a thousand years, these images and wisdom and art and like have been passed down, you know, and then it stopped for two generations, yeah. right? But that didn't mean that just because orally it wasn't being taught to me, that it wasn't in me. And so I wanted to just ask that's why I asked you that question. I just got chills. Thank you so much
0: oh. for for sharing this. I'm so sorry about what's going on. It's agonizing. I, on a global level and and to have this be ukraine and and to be ukrainian canadian is is this is just this lives in you mm-hmm. this lives in you on a on a cellular level and the reaction that you're having by the way is completely normal completely normal and understandable and what a gift the recognition about the symbols is mm-hmm. What a gift to 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 have in 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 this very painful situation to be able to connect with your mom, and to have her give you permission to cry. <laughs> Not that you need permission, but it can be nice mm-hmm. to have her give that. Mm-hmm. And to see the extraordinary strength of the women in the culture you come from, and take pride in that.
1: I I, I always had a story that I was a, a real worrier and even my mom would joke, you know, you like we we would, do these big sighs, you know, like <sighs> you're doing housework and you're sighing. And my mom would joke, she used to always jokingly call it Ukrainian yoga, <laughs> sighing, <laughs> those big, deep sighs. <laughs> and sort of jokingly, we always had this story that Ukraine, you know, that we were worriers and that story about the airplane and how I used to think that it's like, I'm Ukrainian. I could worry for the Olympics. You know, I could worry for Ukraine in the Olympics. <laughs> that And, but watching this happen has really changed my story about who, who I am and who the, the, the people that I come from and the truth about my heritage. And, and it has been um, absolutely heartbreaking to receive this gift of this inheritance because I always, as an artist felt like I was trespassing on other, you know, first nations cultures. If I wanted to pull beautiful symbols or imagery from their work to put in mine, I felt like I was stealing something and it never felt, I never felt like I had anything of my own that way, like that I could, and so when I had this epiphany about, you know, this, it just felt like yeah. this huge gift was bestowed on me of all this. And so, yes, it's been extremely painful to have that gift happen at the same time as as this is happening. And and I hope that it's, you know, I, I know Canada has the, the third largest Ukrainian population outside of Ukraine and Russia. And so I hope that, you know, any other Canadians listening to this and, and Americans too, and anybody anywhere, because I actually don't feel like this is just limited to one country, like wherever you're, wherever your ancestry came from i also feel like you you have this gift that's in you i had no idea this was in me i had no idea this was in me and it feels wow. yeah it feels like a an abundance of 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 gifts that i can't even that i've just can't even begin to tap into i haven't even begun to tap into you have begun i have begun you have begun. i have begun <laughs> that's true i have and, begun and and
0: i i really appreciate you voicing this and sharing it with me and, and the people that are listening, this is what we need to be talking about mm-hmm. together.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Honoring and acknowledging these things and being able to find those things within us that make us feel connected and powerful mm-hmm. and capable and able to rise to whatever is asked of us.
1: I see your strength. Thank you. I, this has been such a wonderful conversation for me. Thank you so much for making the mm-hmm. time for for all of us today. I have one final question. So I ask this at the end of every show: If you had a billboard that every person in the world who longed to be more creative or to or who said that they wished they could be creative but just believed that they couldn't for whatever reason, uh-huh. what would you what would you put on the billboard?
0: I think my billboard would be very concise. Creativity is your birthright. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
1: So much richness in this conversation, wasn't there? I really loved that Cheryl pointed out a big important myth that I think we need to give some attention to around creativity, which is that as artists... Many of us feel attached to our pain. We've made this sort of false connection between our pain and our ability to produce or our creative output. And, and it's a myth, you know, as she says, that in fact, when we do go back and are able to heal some of the traumas and painful things that, are, that maybe remain undigested for us, we're actually able to create for ourselves a deeper, richer connection with ourself with our creativity and we're able to express possibly even bigger and better and greater things. And that it's actually really important to let go of that myth of needing our pain in order to be good artists. I thought that was really important and I wanted to underline that. I also really love the simple exercise that we can incorporate in our everyday lives. Asking ourselves on a regular basis, what's another way to do that? If you go to the same place every day in your car, take a different route. It's important to use different parts of our brain. And I think these two notions can exist really beautifully together. So what is another way to look at the pain that maybe we've been carrying around? What's another way to look at it? What's another way to approach it? Maybe there is another way we can look at the way we've been carrying our ideas of an artist needs to be in pain in order to, access stuff and use it. And I can see that applying to everybody from writers to painters to sculptors to actors, singers, musicians, songwriters. You know anybody who's who's got a story that holding on to your pain is somehow fueling your creativity. What's another way to do what's another way to look at that? What's another way to do that and be with that? Is it possible that that we got that wrong and what might be available to us? If we were to become willing to truly heal and come back to our true, true, deep, soft, quiet inner self and let ourselves create from that place. I want to remind you to sign up for my newsletter on KateShepherdCreative.com. I do a monthly giveaway of art, which I'm about to do a draw for. I often write blog posts and essays for you on things that I'm thinking and occasionally I'll do lives and workshops, how-tos, Q&As. And the best way to find out about all of those things is by being signed up for the newsletter. And I don't want you to miss that. So head over to katecheppardcreative.com and sign up for the newsletter and hold that question with you for the next little while. As you walk about your day, as you move through your life, what's another way to do this? Make sure you're signed up for my newsletter. I pick a random person from my email list once every month and send them an original piece of my artwork. It's one of my favorite things to do. It takes a lot to put together this show. Please consider supporting me to do it. You can visit patreon.com slash Podcast to find out more. And please keep my jewelry or paintings, and especially gratitude birds, which keep selling out, in mind next time you're looking for a treat for yourself or for a loved one. You can find everything I've mentioned on kateshepardcreative.com. Thank you for being here, for opening your heart, and for listening. My wish and intention for this show is that it reach into your heart and stir the beautiful thing that lives in there. May you find and unleash your creative genius.